fair number of cases that are more than 30 years old. But this may be the oldest open and unsolved case I've shared on the podcast. The victim was only 15 years old, which means that his killer, or killers, if they are still alive, are between 60 and 70 years of age. Today's episode is about a boy, a 15-year-old, who missed out on so much because of the cruel violence of others. In a summer cottage on the edge of Lake Michigan, Dr. Atakar Machak is contemplating the end of summer, the end of vacation, and a return to his home. Dr. Machak is a fascinating man, born in Prague, where he attended university, but his work was interrupted by World War II. He fought for the British during the war, becoming a member of the Royal Air Force. After the war, he married his wife, Merta, and the two moved to New York City, where he completed his training to become a doctor. Eventually, the couple settled in St. Louis, Missouri, and started a family. In 1973, Dr. Machek is summering in Frankfort, Michigan, with his wife and children. Over a cup of coffee, he's looking out the window, taking in a view of the magnificent lake. But something near the water catches his eye. It appears there is a body at the foot of the bluff. Machek studies the body for a moment, thinking it's a sunbather or someone sleeping. It's then that he realizes the body is laying too still to be alive. Headed for the phone, he calls the Benzie County Sheriff's Department. Come with me to late summer, 1973. It's Labor Day weekend, vacation is wrapping up, school is about to start, and the life of one teenage boy reaches a violent end. Frankfort, Michigan is a small town inside Benzie County. Benzie is Michigan's smallest county by land area. The county seat is Beulah. The Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lake Shore starts at the northern end of Benzie County. In the 1970 census, the population of Benzie was 8,500 people, and the population of Frankfurt, the setting of today's story, was roughly 1,650 people. I have memories of Benzie County in the 1980s, as my aunt's family owned a sprawling house on Platte Lake over in Beulah. I remember my uncle taking me to his favorite fishing spot in Frankfurt one summer day. It's a beautiful area, tranquil and green, with a mix of hills and water. Frankfurt is a vacation destination. Many of these small towns in northern Michigan rely heavily on tourist dollars to keep themselves in business. So when a body is found on the edge of Lake Michigan, law enforcement wants things handled quickly and quietly. The first weekend of September 1973, Terry Wayne Sutter is 15 years old and days away from starting his sophomore year at Frankfurt High School. On Saturday night, he tells his mother that he's headed to town to go bowling or maybe see a movie or maybe both. But afterward, he intends to sleep over at his grandmother's house. Terry, who is slim with dark hair, is dressed in a striped shirt, dark pants, socks, and athletic shoes. The trip from the Sutter home on Scenic Drive and downtown Frankfurt is six miles. On the ride, the Sutter's truck is approached aggressively by a red pickup truck being driven by an unknown individual. The red truck honks and swerves at their vehicle. The truck and its occupants yell and scream obscenities at the Sutter's. I imagine that today this would be described as a road rage incident. 
Luella Sutter makes a note of the license plate on the truck as it speeds away from them, disappearing down M-22. It is a bizarre and unsettling incident. Luella Sutter drives Terry to town and drops him off near the garden theater. She will not see her son alive again. On Sunday morning, Terry's mother calls her own mother to check on Terry. And Terry's grandmother, Georgia, tells her that Terry never showed up. Luella is concerned this is not like Terry, so she starts calling his friends to ask if they've seen him, and she also places a call to his sister, Roxanne. Roxanne works at the local hospital, and she'd already left for her shift. When Luella reaches her, she tells her that Terry is missing, and asks if Roxanne, quote, knows a Dan Lanning. Terry mentioned Dan to his mother on the ride into town. Roxanne does know him, and, concerned about her little brother, she leaves work, headed to the restaurant where Dan works to see if he knows where Terry is. Dan Lanning is 18 years old, and Terry knows him, and on the night of the murder, Lanning saw Terry, who asked if Lanning would buy him a six-pack of beer. Dan Lanning agreed to buy the beer for Terry, who was underage. At this point, I should mention that on January 1st, 1972, the state of Michigan lowered the drinking age from 21 to 18, and I'm guessing that they did this because of the draft and the war in Vietnam. And it was in part because of the 26th Amendment, which, if you want the short version, is, quote, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, and apparently old enough to drink. In 1978, because of a significant spike in drunk driving accidents and deaths, Michigan returned the drinking age to 21, which is where it remains to this day. Dan Lanning admits that not only did he buy beer for Terry, he also drove him out to the bluff, the site of a party. But Lanning didn't stay for the party, he just dropped Terry off. When Terry's sister, Roxanne, asked Lanning about the beer and the ride, Lanning was hesitant to say anything. A mutual friend, Tina, encouraged him to speak up. Lanning admitted to buying the beer and to giving him a ride. And no one was upset about the beer, they just wanted to find Terry. And we're going to talk about Tina again later in the episode. While Roxanne is asking Dan Lanning about the location of her kid brother, Luella Sutter is driving through town looking for her son. She stops at Old Casey's convenience store and canoe rental because she sees a Benzie County Sheriff's Department cruiser parked in the lot. Luella approaches the deputy and tells him that her child is missing, her 15-year-old son, who has never been in any trouble and never run off before. But the deputy dismisses her concerns, saying that Terry's probably hiding out, trying to avoid the start of school on Tuesday. Luella tells him that this is out of character and she is worried she needs help, but he again shrugs off her fears and reassures her that Terry will be back at home soon. Luella is very angry at this point, and she's frustrated because the Benzie County Sheriff refused to take a missing persons report on her lost child. She returns to the house and calls the Michigan State Police Post in Manistee and the Frankfort City Police, telling them that her son is missing. It's about 1230 that Dr. Machak, looking out the window of his vacation cottage, will see a body laying in the sand and he will place a call to the Benzie County Sheriff. 
Is there something interfering with your happiness? Something holding you back from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed professional counselors, specialists in issues like depression, anxiety, relationships, and more. Connect with your BetterHelp counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and using BetterHelp is so convenient. Access the support you need at your own time and pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions with your counselor. Chat and text options are also available. If you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one. Best of all, BetterHelp is affordable. Listeners have already gone. Get 10% off your first month with discount code GONE. Get started today. Visit betterhelp.com slash gone and complete a questionnaire to be matched with a counselor. Start feeling better now. Visit betterhelp.com slash gone for 10% off your first month. Deputy Warren Bailey and Marine Deputy Mike Nagy arrive on scene just after one o'clock. Nagy, who is also a teacher at Frankfurt High School, recognizes the body as belonging to one of his students, Terry Sutter. They find Terry's remains near the water, and initially they think that maybe he drowned, even though his body is dry and he doesn't appear to have been in the water. Well, his body's at the foot of a bluff. Maybe the death was an accident. Terry lost his footing and plunged to the bottom of the bluff, the impact taking his life. Police from the Frankfurt Department are ready to dismiss the death as an accident and not pursue any further information about the case of 15-year-old Terry Sutter. Yep, a tragic accident. So sorry for the family. Now, Terry's body was lying on a large log that was partially submerged in the sand. He was dressed only in a striped t-shirt and swim shorts. There was a blue sock and an athletic shoe on one foot, and his other foot was bare. His pants are missing. The missing sock and shoe were never recovered, and his ankle was bruised, like he had twisted it. His pants will eventually be recovered, but the location of their discovery is kept secret. When the body is found, three police agencies respond to the scene, the Benzie County Sheriff, the Frankfurt City Police Department, and the Michigan State Police. There is some confusion because Frankfurt asserts that they have jurisdiction. The Sheriff's Department disagrees, claiming jurisdiction on the case, And I'm not sure if the Michigan State Police wanted in on the investigation or not, but this disagreement among the agencies is not a help to the investigation into the death of Terry Sutter. Dr. Castellaneta of Paul Oliver Memorial Hospital, the same hospital where Roxanne Sutter was working that morning when her mom called looking for Terry, he is summoned to the scene so that Terry Sutter can be pronounced dead. Castellaneta recommends to Frankfurt Police Chief Charles Kibbe Jr. and the Benzie County Sheriff Albert Rice that an autopsy be completed on Sutter's remains to determine his cause of death. Meanwhile, officers walk the beach, traveling five miles of Lake Michigan shoreline looking for clues. Troopers from the Michigan State Police take photographs of the scene, and while a record of these pictures exist, an unsuccessful attempt to locate them was made in 2009. Like Terry's sock and shoe, the photos are lost. Meanwhile, Luella Sutter is still driving around looking for her son. As she drives past the home of Frankfurt Police Chief Charles Kibbe, she sees him outside talking to two of his officers. In this era, long before cell phones, 
She stops the car to see if they have found her son, and it is then that she learns that Terry was found deceased. An autopsy is completed Sunday evening, and on Monday, a visitation is held at the local funeral home. The funeral director offered to prepare Terry's face for the viewing, covering him with heavy makeup and powder. Or, even better, because of the damage to his face, a closed casket service may be more appropriate. And his grandmother says no. Terry's face is bruised, his eyes are red from sand, and his grandmother insists on an open casket. She wanted people to see what happened to her grandson. Terry's grandmother stated, quote, I want them to see what they did to him. Terry's face is red and purple and swollen. His eyelids are abraded. His nose is scraped and raw. At autopsy, they literally found a teaspoon of sand behind each of his eyes. Also, disturbingly, it seems that Terry survived the night. The brutal assault against him lasted for hours. Now, the local paper runs stories about his case, and at least through the end of September, there are news stories about it, and the tone shifts in each headline. The first news story is, Boy's Drowning Investigated, and a week later, it's Boy's Death Still a Mystery, and at the end of September, Benzie Death Case Still Unresolved, and then nothing. Not for months. The body of Terry Sutter will be exhumed in late September, three weeks after his burial, and a second autopsy is performed. I have not seen the autopsy report, and I am relying in part on work done by reporter Peter Sandman in 2009. When I started researching this case, I went looking for Sandman. I wanted to talk with him because his work was extensive and took place over several years. But I learned that sadly, he too had passed away. His son told me that Pete was passionate about this case and hoped to see it resolved. Also, in the course of my research, I heard that Peter received anonymous threats when he began his deep dive into this unresolved murder. In one of Sandman's stories, he reported that Terry's lungs were, quote, crepitant, or crunchy to the touch, possibly because he'd been struggling to breathe and inhaled sand. His lungs were filled with sand, all the way deep in his lungs because he had been gasping for air and just sucking in sand. Terry was also the recipient of a brutal beating. One of the news stories said that he was, quote, kicked to death. And there were two odd marks on his back, one on either scapula, and the marks were small, and I imagine them like if someone was wearing high heels and stood on you to hold you down, that the pointed ends of those heels would leave these marks on either shoulder blade. Despite two autopsies, missing clothes, signs of a beating, it's like Terry Sutter's death wasn't actually a murder. The case was treated as if it didn't matter, and no one was talking about it. Not in the winter of 1973, which is when police should have been doing an in-depth investigation, interviewing witnesses, lining up suspects. But they didn't. They didn't do any of that. It won't be until April of 1974 when the next story is released. Investigation continues. And this is a five-paragraph story focused on John D. Berlin, the county prosecutor. 
and it won't be until July of 74 that there's a shift in the case. It's peak summer season, and it's not the police that makes a play in the case. It's the local newspaper. Well, the newspaper with a bit of help from county prosecutor John Berlin. They announce the activation of the silent witness program, and this is specifically to generate leads in the death of Terry Sutter. They model their silent witness program after a similar program in Detroit operated by the Detroit News. The newspaper encourages people to send in tips and leads in the case, with a promise to hand them directly to a neutral third party who will review the tips and pass them on to the sheriff's department. And I think this is a brave move. If Frankfurt police aren't interested in solving this murder, then the prosecutor, he's motivated to do it, and he will do it with the help of the local media. Unfortunately, no one is ready to speak up. No one will admit to knowing who is behind the death of Terry Sutter. Frankfurt is a small town. And while the police aren't talking much about the case, the community is. Whispers, threats, rumors... Terry's gravesite is vandalized repeatedly, and the damage is so severe that the Sutter family removed the headstone, and his sister replaced it with a flowering shrub. But someone pulled that out of the ground and destroyed it. So then, the Sutter family placed pots of flowers on the grave, and those two are vandalized, smashed, and ruined. This leaves Terry Sutter, who was murdered at the age of 15, just two days before the start of his sophomore year, resting in an unmarked grave, and his grave remains unmarked to this day. And if you're thinking that police should have staked out the site, tried to catch the vandals, well, you need police cooperation for that. If you're wondering why no cameras were in place, it's the early 70s, and this is a very small town. Sophisticated media like small cameras that function at night aren't readily available to the average person or the average investigator. Terry Sutter came from a big family. His parents, Luella and Hubert, had six children. Terry was in the middle, with an older brother and sister, and three younger sisters. And after Terry's murder, the Sutter family stayed in Frankfurt. In late spring of 1976, the year that Terry Sutter should have graduated from high school, the Michigan State Police quietly took another look at Terry's case, digging into an investigation that appears to have been abandoned in 1973. And one of the interesting things that came to light in 1976 is that a teenager from the area, his parents were divorced, and after the murder, he moved out of state for a year to live with the other parent. During his interview, he revealed that someone, whose name is redacted from reports, approached him while he was in a car with his grandmother in Frankfurt. The car window was down, and this person walked up with his hand stuffed in his jacket pocket, as if he had a concealed weapon, and he warned the teenager that if he opened his mouth about the Sutter case, he would kill him. The teenager's grandmother, who was with him when this happened, she backed up his story, but nothing happened. So, it's 1976, and we have a verified report that someone is making death threats about the Terry Sutter case. The teenager identified the person who threatened him. His grandmother verified that identification. 
And I'm wondering, is this the same person who vandalized Terry's gravesite to the point that he's in an unmarked grave? Could this be the person who murdered Terry Sutter? Another interview with Dan Lanning, conducted in 1976, provided more details to police. Lanning told them that he bought the beer for Sutter and then dropped him off near Heffernan Hill. Terry said that he was going to a party and he would call his mom for a ride when he needed to get home. This was the last that Lanning saw of Terry Sutter, a 15-year-old boy with a six-pack of beer walking into the woods near a bluff on a warm late summer night. Now, the story turns to Illinois and the home of Eileen Rochert, a mother of three who was also in a cottage near Lake Michigan that weekend. Her summer place wasn't too far from the cottage of Dr. Matchek. While Matchek's cottage had a view of Lake Michigan, Rochert's place overlooked Crystal Lake. If you look at the area on a map close to Frankfurt, you will find Platte Lake, Crystal Lake, and Lake Michigan. On Saturday, September 1st, 1973, Rochert is at the cottage with her three children. Her husband had already returned to Illinois, and she was savoring the last days of summer before she had to return home with the kids. It was isolated there at the cottage. So when headlights shone in her bedroom window in the small hours, it startled her. Rochert got out of bed and went to the kitchen window. She didn't see the car. There were trees in the way. But she heard it and described the vehicle as small, like a sports car. She heard the trunk of the vehicle close, and then the car drove away. So, why didn't Rochert come forward? Hers wasn't the only house to be visited by a strange vehicle that night. Also on Saturday, Luella Sutter reported a car racing up their driveway with kids hollering and yelling at their house late that night. On Sunday, Rochert spent the day packing up and heading home to Illinois with her three children. Sutter's murder was hardly a blip in the Monday morning newspaper, and living a couple of hundred miles away in another state, in 1973, it's unlikely that she heard anything about Sutter's murder until months or years later. I need to mention that Terry Sutter's body was found at the bottom of a bluff just a hundred and some yards from the Rochert Cottage. It's possible that what she saw and heard was Terry's killer driving up to her place, unloading his body from the car, and tossing him down the bluff to the location where Dr. Matchak would see him the next afternoon. It wasn't until a couple of years later, when Rochert was getting her hair done in Frankfurt and the case was getting some press, that she recalled the frightening incident of the car driving up to her cottage that summer night in 1973. In 1986, 13 years after Terry's death, a one-man grand jury is opened before Judge Paul J. Clulo, and he hears testimony on the case in Beulah, Midland, and Lansing, Michigan. The grand jury does not result in an arrest, but almost 20 years later, Clulo does something interesting. He signs an order to the Michigan Supreme Court clerk for the record of the grand jury to be released to the Michigan State Police. Now, we jump forward all the way to October of 2009. In the Benzie County Record Patriot is a redacted interview about the death of Terry Sutter. I will refer to the unnamed individual as the unsub for unknown subject. According to this interview, Terry learned that unsub was selling marijuana and LSD in the community, and Terry threatened him, saying that he would tell the authorities of these activities. The unsub told Terry that that wasn't necessary. The two of them could be friends. 
the unsub told Terry to come to a party at the cottages near the bluff, not far from where Eileen Roshert and Dr. Machek stayed in the summer. This is the same location where Dan Lanning last saw Terry walking into the woods with a six-pack of beer. This next segment is pretty upsetting, so proceed with caution. When Terry arrived at Heffernan Hill, the unsub invited Terry back to the party and then struck him from behind, knocking him to the ground. Then he kicked Terry and told his friends that if they wanted to be in his gang or in his group, they should be kicking Terry too. And perhaps these teens hesitated, thinking that maybe they shouldn't join in. And it's thought that he told them, his friends, that if he was going to jail, they were all going with him. So they joined in, and they kicked Terry repeatedly and viciously until they believed that he was dead. And at that point, they loaded Terry into a car and drove off, looking to get rid of his body. But Terry Sutter was not dead. He began moaning. They pulled off the road and beat him again. Then they took him to the bluffs and threw him over the side. Hours later, they returned to the area to see if he was dead. But Terry Sutter was not dead. He was still alive. And it's then that his face was pressed into the sand and he drowned. He drowned in the sand, sucking it deeply into his lungs, finding it trapped behind his eyes. Then his body was posed on the log, and he was left there. When Terry's body was discovered, Unsub's parents stepped in, threatening those who were involved or who witnessed the attack on Terry. The story shared in the Record Patriot says that law enforcement was paid off so that they wouldn't investigate Terry's murder. It's also possible that the unsub have relatives that worked in the police department. The person who told this story to police said that the unsub and their family threatened to kill them if they said anything. Obviously, this is one version of events, a version that may or may not be accurate. We don't know who this person is that provided the information, and if the story is true, why can't someone corroborate it? We have several people allegedly beating Terry. Surely one of them had the courage, as an adult, to admit their participation or witnessing of this assault. And it's at this point that I want to go back to Tina. We mentioned her early in the story. She was working with Dan Lanning when Roxanne Sutter came in looking for him to see where her brother could be. In 2009, Pete Sandman approached her for his series on the death of Terry Sutter. And she responded, After all these years, I don't remember. I'm not a good source. If the story involving the unsub was true, it seems possible that people who participated in or witnessed the murder of Terry Sutter could be hesitant to come forward because of threats. It's also possible that Tina just doesn't recall the events of that long-ago weekend. But how many weekends do you have a classmate or neighbor end up murdered? I'd like to think that if it were me, I would remember. But... It's hard to say. Another theory put forward by the Record Patriot mentioned someone else from the community, a young man named Bob Lee. Lee lived in Frankfurt and drove a sports car. Remember that Eileen Roshert described the car that she heard near her cottage the night that Terry died as sounding like a sports car. If Terry Sutter had somehow scratched or damaged Lee's sports car, could that have led to his death? Did Lee's anger simmer strongly under the surface? The story noted that Bob Lee was, quote, acquainted with the family of the unsub that we discussed earlier. Terry Sutter was a teenage boy who died under bizarre and violent circumstances on a late summer weekend in 1973. 
His mother and siblings still hope that someone will be held accountable in his death. But as of this writing, no one has been arrested or charged, and police have yet to name a person of interest or a suspect in the case. In 2019, Frankfurt Police, the Michigan State Police, and the Benzie County Sheriff's Department all have files on Sutter's murder. Back in 2009, the Benzie County Sheriff's Department was the central location for a cold case task force, and Terry Sutter's murder was open and active once again. Had Terry Sutter survived that late summer night in 1973, he would now be in his 60s. This means it's likely that the person or persons involved in his murder are also aged 60 to 75. If you have information about the murder of Terry Sutter, please call the Benzie County Sheriff's Department at 231-882-4484, extension 2. Special thanks to Pete Sandman for his work to keep the story in the public eye, and to the Sutter family for their assistance in sharing Terry's story. Listeners, please remember that Terry Wayne Sutter was more than a victim. He was a son, a brother, and a friend, and his loss is felt deeply to this day. Already Gone is a true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Episodes are released on the 1st and 15th of each month. If you are interested in bonus content, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. Listeners, be sure to check out this month's sponsor, BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com gone and use code gone for 10% off your first month. You can also find Already Gone on Facebook and on Twitter at Already Gone Pod. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. <laughs>